Chapter Fourteen of A Yellow Journalist by Miriam Michelson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leanne Howlett. Some Japanese Prints, which Miss Massey admired. I thought for a moment as he stood there looking down at me, his face livid with wrath, that he was actually about to trample on me. But even as I marveled at it, the fury in his face was gone, leaving it haggard, terrified, but cunning still, and cautiously alert. "'What... what have you there, Miss Massey?' he asked, trying to steady his voice to a matter-of-fact tone. I looked up at him. There's no grace in him, of course. He'd pretend still and lie, lie uselessly, even with the futility of lying obvious to everyone in the world but himself. "'It's just proof that I had the right name for you this afternoon, Mr. Offield,' I said slowly. He jumped. "'And what name shall be applied to a criminal like you?' he shouted, "'taking advantage of a position of trust to break open your employer's desk.' "'Oh, oh!' I exclaimed. I felt stunned for a second, as though I'd been struck. That's what your face meant when you came in? But you're wrong. Fair boy helped me open the drawer. We wanted Quillinan's picture. And then, afterward, I found this. I spread my open hands over the torn papers in my lap. He stood a moment watching me. I fancy he must have believed me. But then I was so simply sure of speaking the truth, and so preoccupied thinking of what might have been and couldn't, just couldn't be, that it never occurred to me he might doubt. "'I—I I beg your pardon, Miss Massey,' he said with an effort. "'May I help you to rise?' He reached out his hand, but I scrambled to my feet without touching it. "'Oh, it's a blackguard hand, that well-cared-for, white hand that was shaking so visibly now, he himself noticed it, and rammed it down into his pocket.' Then he stood there, a gross little frightened figure, watching me while, with careful deliberation, I matched the torn pieces together on top of his desk and stood bending over them. No, no, it wasn't the constructive instinct that makes one put fragments together again. It was just that I was hungering for the sight of it all straightened out, with Offield's unmistakable M's and K's, with his initials adding emphasis to a question mark he'd placed in the margin calling attention to an underscored word, just as he does in a proof, and at the bottom of the page written squarely out. Stand pat on the forty thousand. The risk we run, the hurt the ad itself, even in a special edition, may do us, is worth all of that to us, and more to Bassett. U.P. will pay up all right. C.S.O. There it was just as Ted must have submitted it to Offield, and got it back with the notes to resubmit to Bassett, and finally to incorporate all our respected proprietors' objections into the finished contract, which Newberry had signed for United Power, and Ted for the news. I looked up at last from the paper to Offield's face. It was gray. "'Sit down a minute, won't you?' he stammered. "'I—I I have something to say.' I shook my head, but I stood there waiting with that thing, 
that awful expose spread out before us both. The appearance of it somehow seemed to paralyze me, to put a stop to everything, to make it unnecessary for me to do anything more. It was this way, he went on. I, I really did forget about it. Oh, I assure you I did. And after I had given that interview to the mail, in which I expressed what was at the time genuine indignation at Mr. Thompson's conduct, having forgotten and really never having thoroughly understood the, I mean not having given proper attention to the matter. At any rate, I remembered, but of course it was too late. The mischief was done for Thompson. It's about him you care? I nodded. It didn't seem very sensible to listen to such stuff as that. But it came upon me suddenly then, the desperate need to range myself openly on Ted's side. Well, we can make that all right, he went on quickly. I, you can't expect me to go back on my tracks now, but after a bit things will quiet down, and he can come back to the office. I've got to discharge him, of course, for the form of the thing, but he will get his salary just the same, and he can drop down to the islands or over to Japan till— You fancy he'd work again for you? I gasped. He got red and fidgeted a moment, then making a sudden resolution, he said, See here now, Miss Massey, if you'll hand over that paper to me, I'll give you and Thompson a year's salary, transportation to Japan, and after the year is up, I'll hold your positions open for you. Now isn't that fair? Isn't it? He repeated as I didn't answer. But I couldn't speak, not just that moment, for something choking in my throat. I was bending lovingly over that paper noting every tiny red ink mark, reading over every correction and amendment Offield had insisted upon. It seemed to me I must, must take it up and run away with it, but I didn't. I only crammed it into Offield's hands and ran desperately away without it. But, oh, Miss Massey, he called as I whirled out into the hall. I stopped a second and he came out after me. "'You're a sensible little thing, after all,' he began, speaking in a confidential low voice. "'Suppose you just see Thompson when he gets in and put him wise. Tell him he'd better not come to the office. We can arrange—' "'Oh, you blackguard! You unspeakable, cowardly blackguard!' I sobbed, the tears running down my cheeks. He looked at me as though I'd gone mad, as though he had himself and longed to tear me to pieces. And then, bewildered, he looked from me to the paper he still held in his hand. Do, "'Do you think that that makes any difference?' I demanded, so furious that I couldn't control my voice. "'Oh, you mean that you can give the story away without having the actual copy, and with my offer to you and Thompson to boot, you intend you—' But I wouldn't let him say the name— though the thought that he might down the hysterical sobs in my throat and gave me breath to speak at last. No, no, I said, gulping hard. I can't give the story away, Mr. Offield, with or without that paper, or, or any other way. And do you know why? For a reason that not another man on the paper beside yourself would need to be told. It's because we're bigger, better men than you, Ted and I. It's because this is an office story that I got hold of by being in the office. And if I gave it away, 
If I were blackguard enough to match you, Ted Thompson wouldn't accept rehabilitation at such hands as mine. It's because... But you couldn't understand it if I'd explained to you by the hour. Only, you're safe till Ted Thompson comes back to break every bone in your despicable body. And I stormed down the steps. I couldn't wait for the elevator. But the night air and the fog cooled me, and the sight of Bowman crossing over to take up the city desk again, and the crowd coming up Market Street, and a swift hello behind me, I knew the voice. It was Frank McGowan's. He dropped off a cable car and joined me. "'Guess where I've been, Rhoda?' he cried. I shook my head. "'Out to see Judge Frisby, police court. Don't you know Frisby?' "'Well, I shashayed out to the hall the first minute I could get after reading that noble interview with your generous and disinterested proprietor. Miss Massey—' "'Not mine any more,' I interrupted, pointing to Bowman, who, across the street from us, was just entering the news building. "'Shake!' Frank put out his hand. I dropped mine into it, and he gave it a brotherly squeeze. "'You're a man, Rhoda, and white.' he gurgled, satisfied. So am I. Listen. How much does it cost, Judge? I whispered to Frisby in a lull in court, pretending to be consulting him about one of Brockington's bulky briefs, but really showing him that dirty wipe at Ted in the mail. How much to lick Offield? Twenty dollars, says Frisby, frowning judicially and diving down into his pockets. Twenty dollars and I'll lend you the money. Ain't he a corker? I nodded delightedly. But you're not. On my way down to look Offield? That's just what I am, Miss Massey. A bit late, but here's the judge's twenty to pay the fine I'll have to put up for it. Cheap at double the price, ain't it? And if you want to see the prettiest and speediest little scrap... I shook my head. I've had enough of the news, I said. I wouldn't go back there for the pleasure of seeing its R.P. licked, Frankie. I don't want even to see the paper tomorrow morning. Why? What's the paper going to say about U.P.? Oh, just roast the life out of Bassett editorially and... What? You didn't think, I cried with a last flicker of leftover pride in the poor old paper, that the news was going to lie down under all these charges. I've just bet a week's salary, week after next, that it would do just that same. Up at the press club, the odds are five to three that Offield won't dare pipe a note in self-defense. Because? I challenged. He looked at me queerly. Just where are you at, Rhoda? He demanded facetiously. I laughed. It's a little hard to remember, Frank. The change has been so sudden. But do tell me like a nice child. Well, nobody seems to know where it came from. Perhaps it was a hint of Newberry's, but everybody appears to have an idea that U.P.'s got some esoteric sort of cinch on Offield. A duplicate, I think it is, that he signed, and for... Frankie! I squealed, stopping short in the street. Oh, Frankie, say it over again. I didn't give U.P. the stranglehold, Rhoda, he reminded me. I'm only glad they've got it, if they have. But you don't mean to tell me you were city editor and news editor and managing editor a whole day and never got an inkling that your boss was in deeper water than he'll admit? Where are your wits, Rhoda Massey? 
Oh, they're all right, I chanted in gleeful football fashion. I was so happy plain talking didn't seem adequate. But know it? Of course I know some few things, but only officially. Officially, you understand, Mr. McGowan. But now I do really know what you've told me, and, Frankie, I could hug you. I don't believe it, he said with challenging cynicism. Well, I won't try to convince you just this minute, I laughed happily. Because, well, because there's Senator Newberry crossing the street, and he might... I stopped for a minute as Newberry raised his hat, passed us, hesitated, and then as Frankie called out to him, Say, Senator, guess what Rhoda Massey just said? He turned and came back to where we were. He laughed when Frankie shamelessly repeated what I had said and looked inquiringly at me. Oh, yes, I answered gaily. I did say it, but Frankie's got the pet press failing. He's given to misleading half-quotation. I did say I could hug him, if he wasn't such a cheeky little beggar, I was going to add. But he's altogether too impudent to be huggable, isn't he? Newberry looked sharply down at me. Once before this afternoon he had looked at me like that. "'Your mood is very gay, Miss Massey,' he said slowly. "'You seem much happier than you were a few hours ago.' "'Naturally,' I laughed. "'I've lost me job.' Newberry stared. "'I've joined that club, the ex-city editors I was telling you about at the office,' I added. "'I see, Miss Massey.' Newberry said. He'd been doing some quick thinking, and so had I. At the risk of becoming monotonous, I really think we could do business together if— I'm sure of it, I interrupted. Wait a minute. And hauling McGowan off to one side, I whispered, Look here, Frankie. There's something you've got to do for Ted Thompson that may cost more than twenty dollars, but it will be worth infinitely more than what you were thinking of, for he couldn't do it himself, and I couldn't do it for him, and so... But you shall have the story if there is one, and... What's up? What's up, Rhoda? The boy cried eagerly, looking inquisitively toward Newberry, who had walked slowly to the corner. I can't tell you, and you've got to trust me, Frank, and help me. I want a proof out of the news composing room of the editorial about United Power that's to be run tomorrow morning. You've got to beg it, or buy it, or, oh, I don't care how you get it, and I wouldn't tell you how to go about it, even if I had time to think out how. I can't help you to get in and loot the pantry, where I've been acting as butler, but, but, Frankie, you're the dearest little expert burglar in the profession, and if you bring me that proof soon, right away, if you do. If I do, I bet the judge is twenty I do, Rhoda Massey he said, strutting a bit. Then afterward, can I lick Offield? There mightn't be time, I stammered, for by that time, Ted... Will be home himself? Hooray! Then I'll go mitt and watch him do the beggar up. No, you won't. You'll get this thing for me and bring it to the hotel where I'll be waiting and... Oh, please, Frankie. What's the matter with tomorrow? Not much, only... Oh, you know very well, Frank McGowan, that the discreetest man in the world is more likely to talk today than tomorrow. Please, now. And miss a scrap and such a scrap as that. What do you take me for? 
I looked at him a minute. For best man at the wedding, Frank, I murmured. Really? Whoop! He danced a little breakdown there in the street, then seized my hands a moment in an awful grip and whirled away. Senator, I said to Newberry when in his rounds he came back to me, I'm very anxious to have an interview with Mr. Bassett. I think I'll have something to show him that will interest him, but if I don't, can you arrange it for me? You wouldn't want to interview him about any story recently published concerning United Power, Miss Massey, he asked doubtfully. Of course, you know Bassett's objection to being quoted in print. Yes, of course. And yet, Miss Massey, Newberry went on, carefully feeling his way, I'd like you to see Ben Bassett in some other light than that the papers picture him. He's many-sided, is Bassett, and it wounds him to think that the public knows him only as, as... Why, Mary! He broke off suddenly as the taller of two girls in an automobile that stopped at the curb bowed to him. What lucky chance brings you to town today? She was a very queen of a girl, but she blushed a bit at his tone. Still, only in that condescending, gracious way such fine creatures have, betraying, not confusion, but interest, animation, and something subtler and sweeter that matched the light in Newberry's eyes. I'm down with Dorothea, Senator, she said, putting out a hand to meet his. She has had her final interview with Mr. Lowenthal. Mother and I opposed it, but it's decided now, and... What is it, Dorothea? She added as her sister burst into exclamation. It's Miss Massey. I'm Dorothea Chipchase, Miss Massey, don't you remember? The girl cried, seizing my hand. Mr. Lowenthal wrote to me again after you had spoken of me to him, and... And I'm going on the stage. It's settled. Isn't that fine? Oh, I'm so much obliged to you. I squealed back at her. It was delightful to see the animation in that girl's face and contrast it with the expression I had seen upon it last. But the change in her was nothing compared to that in Mary Chipchase. No wonder Newberry could forget Bassett, the news, Rhoda Massey, and everything else while he looked at her. But his eyes did meet mine presently, and he was about to speak when Dorothea burst forth again in staccato exclamation. "'Oh, and I want to tell you,' she cried, "'about Sister Euphrosine. Yes, yes, she's making the frocks for my stage debut, and oh, Miss Massey, we got to talking about you the day your big grand jury article came out. Do you know she takes the news and is exquisitely, delightfully ashamed of it and, and just as proud of you? How in the world did you contrive to make friends with a, a Jesuit? By, by being something of a Jesuit myself, I murmured, shamefaced. She, she was interested in the Lowenthal case, and I sent her the paper that told about the turning up at the last moment of the letter that— That cleared young Lothal, Newberry broke in. He had been talking eagerly to Mary Chipchase. I remember all about it. But listen, Dorothea, you and Mary are going to dine with me. Won't you come too, Miss Massey? I saw real appeal in his eyes. Rhoda Massey Gooseberry was what was written therein, and positively I'd have enjoyed playing the part and being monopolized by Dorothea 
in order to give Newberry his opportunity if it hadn't been for something far, far more important. No, no thank you, Senator, I said slowly. I can't. I have an appointment with Mr. Bassett. Didn't I mention it? At his office, at half-past seven? His eyes met mine agreeingly. Yes, I believe, come to think of it, you did, he said. I'll call him up and remind him of it. And then he added, as he stepped into the car, Bassett's a peculiar fellow, Miss Massey. It doesn't do to expect things too confidently from him. He's old caution itself, you know, and no one can tell when he'll cool. So the safe way is to heap on more fuel, I interrupted quickly as I nodded goodbye to them all. Have you got it? Newberry's eyes demanded. The chauffeur had swung around, but Newberry's curiosity swung him with it. I wavered a second. Then I caught sight of Frank McGowan coming down street on a run, a galley proof fluttering triumphantly from his uplifted hand. I nodded then to Newberry, and he lifted his hat and smiled back an unmistakable congratulation. You bet I had it. Good for you, Frankie. Now listen, I began the moment I had hold of him. "'Who's the pretty girl?' he demanded, looking eagerly after the automobile. "'She's nameless and homeless, and you'll never see her again if you don't do what I want, Frank.' "'Well, didn't I get your old proof for you?' he cried resentfully. "'And isn't Blake in the composing room already half—' "'Blake? Was it? The wretch! Never mind that. It's your own old proof, Frankie, and you're to high with it to the gray building where Boss Bassett—' Not on your... Where Boss Bassett spins spider webs for United Power, I went on quickly. You shows him the dreadful thing the news is going to say about him tomorrow morning, calling particular attention to certain expressions likely to draw blood. Now, Mr. Bassett, you says, striking manfully when the iron is hot, Mr. Bassett, be you a-going to stand for such goings-on and never once get back at him? And then... Then he'll rub his hand over that smug chin of his and say softly, I take a great personal interest in your career, Mr. McGowan. I have watched your work and predict fine things for you in the future. It is a weakness of mine to love to pose as the patron of youth and talent. That is why it is peculiarly painful for me to refuse you this small favor. But I really cannot, in justice to the great corporation I represent, be interviewed on this subject nor any other. You know my invariable rule. Bravo, bravo. I applauded the really excellent imitation of the old boss's best manner. Here, take the proof, Frankie, and try it on him. I won't. What's the use of tackling Bassett? He's been overrun with reporters today, and not a fellow's got a word out of him. Don't I know? Whoever got a word out of Bassett? Just go like a nice lad to please me and, and Frankie. Well, he asked sulkily, and just forget to bring the proof with you when you come away so he'll have it after you're gone to read. He wheeled about. What are you up to, Rhoda Massey? he demanded. Oh, something, something, Frankie. No, no, I won't tell you. But if it turns out as, as I think it will, why, I haven't got any paper and you and the press shall have for your very own a scoop that'll shake the town. And, and I'll throw in an introduction to Dorothea Chipchase to boot. I ended with a trembling laugh. 
He was off with that, though he did assume the melodramatic air of a hero bound for martyrdom. But he came running back. Say, Rhoda, Offield heard of my asking Judge Frisbee how much fine I'd have to pay for licking him. It's frightened him off the earth. They say up at the news office that he's to sail tomorrow morning for Japan. So when poor Ted gets there, the cupboard'll be bare, and— and Mr. Charles Staniford Offield's career as a newspaper proprietor will be over, and he'll never dare come back here if this thing we're working on goes right. No, no, don't ask me, I cried hurriedly. See, it's seven o'clock. Hurry over to Bassett. He won't be there long. I stood and watched him till he crossed over and went into the big gray skyscraper that U.P. has built on Market Street. The fog had lifted and the night was clear and balmy. Busy people don't often get a chance to feel the softness of a summer evening like that. But when the fog of your own preoccupation lifts for a moment, and you see the world and love it, it is with a love that's all the greater for the many beautiful hours you've had to do without. And, oh, I loved it as I stood there, the twilight of the town life, between the worry of day and the hurry of night, when all the shoppers are gone home, and even those shrill human sparrows the newsboys are still, and the half-empty cars go jangling idly up and down, and the flower vendors on the corner are packing up their pretty burdens, carefully, as though they were fragile flower babies that might die for lack of air and gentle handling. Funny to have nothing to do. I looked up at the big clock. A full half-hour yet. Slowly and dreamily, it seemed so odd to be idle, I walked down toward the ferry. Up this way, along this same street, a man would ride in about an hour. A real man. A newspaper man. Ah, me! There's this about a newspaper man. He doesn't go round on stilts, and he isn't sure he's better, which often means cleverer in covering up his sins, than other men. He will come off his perch, and he won't talk gruff, and women have to listen to so much of that sort of thing from men and he'll meet you on any ground but a pretentious one. There's nothing of the ostrich about him. He knows when it's time to lay down his cards, and you don't find yourself talking against a baffling wall, a wall of pretense. You're not compelled to meet his make-believe with make-believe and give utterance to an editorial policy at war with your news pages. You can't bluff him by fine writing. He's on intimate terms with the truth. He knows the inside, and he won't take the trouble to be insincere. And the beauty of his frankness is that it punctures shams that run up against it. The greatest hypocrite in the world never got any real comfort in posing before Ted Thompson. He couldn't look into that shrewd, good-humored eye of Ted's without seeing himself caricatured there. No, you can be blessedly yourself with a newspaper man, and he'll be the same. It isn't always the nicest sort of self. Perhaps not, but it spoils you for most other kinds. It's, it's so human, so straight from the shoulder, so, so my kind, mine and Ted's. God love him, and... And just here I caught sight of the big clock above the ferry, and in a jiffy I was aboard a car bound uptown again, and in five minutes I was climbing U.P. stairs. It brought me back to my senses, the sight of that close, secretive place. Everything in it, though locked and barred and put aside for the day, a tribute to the real power of united power, its power over the town and the state. 
As I came at last into the boss's room, all those bolted desks and safes behind me seemed bursting with the secrets they held, the secrets of U.P.'s mastery, and of the men that sold that mastery and themselves to it. "'You will pardon my keeping you waiting, Miss Massey,' said the boss, placing a chair for me. "'I have been pestered with newspaper reporters even as late as this. "'I sometimes marvel,' he went on blandly, turning his sharp, sly old face full upon me. "'What sort of consciences these people must have who trade in the betrayal of confidence "'and calmly invite one to pour his woes into the ear of the press? "'A receiver like my telephone.' with a hundred thousand tongues instead of one discreet central. I speak frankly because I understand from Senator Newberry, he added genially, that you yourself have left the arena of noisy, sensational journalism, and have determined to take your place, he believes, in the rather more quiet and genteel field of the newspaper magazine. Senator Newberry is, is quite right, I gasped. He must be, I thought to myself, even if he had inhumanly relegated a live journalist to the Sunday supplementary cemetery. "'I congratulate you upon the change, Miss Massey,' the boss went on, dovetailing his fingers and preaching gravely at me over them. "'Only this afternoon, as I was leaving the news building—' Quickly I sat up and began to take notice. "'I remarked to Newberry,' he went on calmly, how much it was to be regretted that a young woman of your principles and nice ethical discernment should have these virtues blunted by contact with the dishonorable necessities of her profession. Dumbly I agreed with him, but shades of U.P., a sermon on the higher life from Boss Bassett. So, the voice of the boss boomed amiably on, when Newberry telephoned me that you wished to make your first article a descriptive and instructive essay on rare Japanese prints, I departed from my invariable rule, Miss Massey, and agreed to receive you here, to show you my modest little collection, at least two people that I know have better ones, the Mikado and Li Wang Chung, and give you such information as is in my power. Won't you take this seat? I did. I sank back into the chair he rolled closer to the desk. I didn't know whether to laugh or to cry. A descriptive and instructive essay by Rhoda Massey. Oh, bury me deep in a yellow journalist's grave. It, it is very good of you, I gasped. Not at all, not at all. I am only too happy to speak to an appreciative listener of this pet fad of mine. A man... He spread his hands largely. Of the world, forced to use the world and force it to be of use, for its own good, of course, to great corporate interests which he serves, is apt to become associated in people's minds with all that is materialistic. He is judged by his sterner qualities, which very likely are but a small and even acquired part of his real nature. It is to get relief from this oppressive image of oneself as well as from the harassing preoccupation of one's profession, that such men take refuge in things of purely abstract beauty, my particular pleasure being, as you know, in that exquisite land of the ideal which the old Japanese masters have so beautifully preserved for us. Ah! From a pile of prints before him he lifted the first. I said, ah, too, 
though all I saw was a flat simpering Jap lady, backed by a soft little mountain cone and a lake of blue mud. Hiroshige's wave, exclaimed the boss. I knew that would touch you, that wonderful tone of blue. Is it not exquisite? And the draperies, masterly are they not? Look at Fuji, Fujiyama, of course. Such color harmonies, such a peculiarly quiet and refined scale of color. Miss Massey, I told you that the Mikado has a better collection. But I must ask pardon of this glorious Katsukawa, or perhaps Yasai, that delicious colorist. There is nothing finer in the world than those old kakamono. You agree with me? I, I was dazed. I would have agreed with anybody about anything. Is it possible, I said to myself as I sat there listening to him expatiate upon his yellow-red series and his quintet in gray-brown tones of Hakusai and Kosakanakoa and the delectable lot of them, is it possible, Rhoda Massey, that fate would play you so grotesque a joke as to keep you here listening to such stuff, and on this evening of all evenings when the one man in the world is about to swing on an uptown car and... But I couldn't. I couldn't think of Ted. Quickly I turned back to the pile of prints with the crepe paintings interspersed. It was getting smaller, fortunately. But still the boss's voice droned enthusiastically on. Yes, it was genuine enthusiasm. He meant what he was saying. Whatever else it was, it was fun to him. But to me and to Ted. A rap at the door came to deliver me, and Bassett left me to look over his precious prints while he stepped into the next room. I looked over them. Oh, yes. I lifted one flimsy sheet after the other. And all the time, for I determined I would wait no longer, I was framing the question I meant to put to him when he should come back. But I didn't put that question. I didn't. For, you see, as I lifted the last little banner of crepe framed in bands of silver and golden network, with ornaments of ivory depending from its silken fringe, I found Channel's editorial in proof on U.P., and beneath it was the most exquisite color harmony in the world, to me. Only this one wasn't Japanese. It was good straight-out American. It was typewritten, and the revisions and corrections in the margin were in red ink. A duplicate, an almost exact duplicate, but for a change here and there of that same betraying document, edited by Offield's own hand, that I had had in my possession that very afternoon. Ah, tut-tut, what a blunder! I heard the boss's voice from a long way off. The sight of that precious paper again had made me weak, almost faint with the sense of achievement. A blunder, though? And was I the blunderer? Did he intend? How unfortunate, Bassett went on, lifting the papers from before me, that this long-lost document should turn up just now and here. I had no idea this thing was with the prince. But now I suppose I must take you into my confidence, Miss Massey. A young man from one of the newspapers brought me a stolen copy of this editorial, hoping, I suppose, to profit by some unwary expression of my natural indignation against its author. Of course, I promptly refused to treat with him. Of course, I murmured, to fill in the pause. Naturally. But after he left, my mind began to hark back over our dealings with the news, 
and I recalled then that two rough drafts, somewhat dissimilar, were sent us for our acceptance, both revised by Mr. Offield, the understanding being, of course, that both were to be returned to him when negotiations were concluded and the final contract drawn up. I thought both had been returned, but in some unaccountable way this one must have been mislaid among my prints. It is most unfortunate. I deeply regret it. But since you have seen it, it would be useless to deny it, and I know I can rely upon your discretion. Still, my dear young lady, I regret the circumstance for its effect upon a youthful mind like yours. It is not good to deal with depravity, to be aware of it. Ye shall not touch pitch. In the interest, as I have told you, of this great corporation, I am in daily contact, in hourly danger of blackmail. Miss Massey, suddenly the veil dropped and his cold eyes fairly blazed with fury. I swear to you my wrist is tired signing checks for Offield and his like. Look, here is a demand from a southern paper. It needs new presses. And here is a northern one that wants a linotype machine. And here in the city is one that must have a color press. And here is another that begs. Begs what? Why, ammunition, thinly disguised, to be used upon ourselves as soon as united power comes under fire. A graceless herd of traitors they are, these newspaper proprietors who shamelessly put themselves up for sale, who pull at your coat and smirkingly try to catch your eye and force their venality upon your attention, yet who will not stay bought, these new inky horse-leeches' sons with their eternal. He stopped suddenly. My heart seemed to stop beating, too. Could he, could he retract after a thing like that? Eh, my dear young lady, he said softly, lifting the bundle and preparing carefully to put away his treasures. I throw myself upon your mercy. All that has passed between us, all that I have said, is confidential, is it not? Thank you. I had been thinking of it all just before you came and for distraction I turned to the prince. I would advise you to do likewise. Cultivate some pure, unworldly interest that shall solace. I didn't hear the rest. How could I? As he lifted the package of prints and turned to place them in a cabinet in the wall, a sheet of paper fluttered down on the table before me. The last sheet of the pile it was, THE sheet, the only one that could have any value for me the paper that should rehabilitate Ted Thompson and— And that made Rhoda Massey blush for her stupidity, and wonder whether Bassett didn't think her reputed cleverness overrated, so unpardonably slow and dull she had been that he had had to perform twice the miracle of accident, and twice affect absent-mindedness before she understood. Rhoda, Ted whispered, drawing my hand inside his arm and holding it there as we walked up street together. Brockington and Lowenthal came down on the same train that I did. They talked all the way of— You'd no business, Ted Thompson, I interrupted, trembling. You'd no business judging me by a harder standard than you'd have for any man reporter. Oh, yes, I had, sweetheart. You yourself have proved that I had he said softly. And I had, because you know, you never were a reporter to me, Rhoda. At least it's so long ago that I can't remember when I didn't think of your living up to a standard as high, 
as high as the unworthy heart of man can create for the woman he loves. Loves, Rhoda. Loves, loves, loves. He had said it under his breath, but the whole town seemed to be ringing with it. Teddy, I sobbed, keep it, that standard in your heart till, till I grow up to it. And then, beloved, he murmured, his smiling tenderness hushing me as though I were a child. Will you reach down and help me up? Wives do, you know. We didn't speak for a time after that, but as we walked home under the stars, Ted listened to me and my story in that way that's his own, so full of sympathy, so acutely interpretive and understanding, you hardly realize that only one of you is doing the talking. It seems so like a quiet but complete collaboration. And there was a mist in his eyes and a note in his dear voice, when he spoke at last, that set the whole world a-singing. To me it seemed as though living had been a dumb poem that found its voice in the music of loving. End of chapter 14 End of a Yellow Journalist by Miriam Michelson Recording by Leanne Howlett.